This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to part nine, to week nine of our series, He Gave Us Stories on the Parables of Jesus. And this week, we're coming to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be talking about the parable that has many names. (laughs) This is another one of those, Sam, where... It's like one Bible calls it the parable of the persistent friend. Another one is the parable of the friend at midnight. It's like every translation of the Bible has a different title for this parable. (laughs) Friend at midnight works for me. That's what usually sticks in my head. Okay, so we're going to call it the friend at midnight That's because that's going to be the title that we're using on Sunday uh, at church. But this is the story in which – Immediately after giving them, giving his disciples the example of what, what most of you will know as the Lord's Prayer, Sam and I would both, I think, agree that it should be called the Disciples' Prayer because he's giving it to his <laughs> disciples as an example prayer. But right after that, then Jesus is going to tell them a story, a parable about prayer. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about, but we're going to begin actually at the beginning here in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Um, where one of Jesus' disciples are going to ask him, Lord, teach us to pray um, as John taught his disciples. Um, I have a theory about this, Sam, and tell me what you think about this. Okay. I have a theory that there was something distinctive about the way that John's disciples prayed. Like John gave them an example prayer or taught them how to pray in such a way that when they prayed, somebody who was listening – would say, that's one of John's disciples. Um, hmm. And the reason I think that is, you know, and it wasn't because of anything that Jesus and John did, but you know that there was a bit of a competition between this, the, the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus. The, the disciples of John themselves stirred it up at times, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it was the Pharisees, but it, it was like, hey, you know what? John's disciples are always fasting and praying, but yours are eating and drinking, Jesus. Why do your disciples get to have such a good time? <laughs> uh, so there was this kind of competition, this fraternal competition going on between these two groups of disciples. And so I think that this was a request by the by the disciples of Jesus, and and we've talked about this before. That it always seems like one one disciple comes. I said, you know, Jesus was probably quietly intimidating. It's like, okay, who's gonna who's gonna ask him? Somebody somebody's got to ask the master this. We really want to know the answer, Peter. <laughs> Peter, you go you go ask him. You'll oh, ask you him. You know anything. that's true. So. <laughs> So one disciple came forward, probably, yeah. I think, speaking for them all, and said, Lord, give us a way to pray. Yeah, and I think, you know, they're, they're sitting there watching him, and it says that when he finished prayer, they come up to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And my guess is, you know, just as John's disciples watch John pray, and remember, John is somebody who's filled with the spirit of Elijah. He is, you know, uh, zealous. He is absolutely all in in his relationship with God. And if you know anybody who's like that, like there are people that I pray with where I'm like, man, like 
they sound like their their line to the Lord is much shorter than mine. <laughs> you know, I, I get the sense that their prayer life is just way more powerful, way more, in a weird way, rewarding. I get that um, feeling every time I pray with Beth Hendricks. <laughs> yeah, it's actually who I was thinking of. Um, but you know, the same is true with with my wife. Like when she's earnestly praying, it's it's a really powerful thing yeah. to be there with her. Yeah. And and for sure, Beth, I remember being in the Bahamas when we were on a retreat together, which was a once in a ministry kind of deal. But I remember being on the beach talking about, and we were praying for Rio and praying for the ministry to come and what. And I remember hearing her pray, and I was like, "All right, I'm jealous of this." Like. Yeah. This is like intense and very real and powerful yeah. and raw. And I think, you know, the same way that John's disciples were listening to him and were like, we want to be like this. What do we have to do to have this kind of prayer life? You know, I, I think the disciples, as they're watching Jesus, are noticing like, man, he's he is transfixed. He's transformed into some kind of heavenly posture. He is so near to the Lord. Look at him. Like, how do we get that? Um, and I think the disciples are like, "Hey, John, <laughs> John's disciples got taught. You know, why not us?" Yeah, I think that there's also something. There's a message there in that to us, which is, yeah, John taught his disciples to pray, and Jesus is going to teach his disciples to pray. Mm-hmm. So we can be taught to pray. What does that mean? Well, that means that prayer is a skill. That can be developed. You can get better in mm-hmm. your prayer life, um, and you know, <laughs> I, I don't know a single person who comes to faith and goes to, into the church group saying, "Let me pray." Yeah, <laughs> you're like, "Oh, please don't pick me. Please don't yes. pick me. Please don't yeah. pick me," because you're terrified of having to pray out loud. It is, and especially because you know, when you hear somebody else begin praying confidently, and they seem to have all these insider terms and turns of phrases <laughs> that they use, that you're kind of like, "Whoa." Ah, uh, please, can I just be the – skip me. I just want you to skip me in the line. Uh, I think that there's a there's a sense in which people can be intimidated uh, by hearing other people pray. Mm-hmm. I, I have a tendency – and for those that don't know uh, who Sam and I were talking about when we said Beth Hendricks, that's our pastor's wife, our senior pastor's wife. And she is our prayer coordinator at church. Um, and she's somebody who, as we've both said, is just really powerful in, in her prayer life. And it's, you know, when I pray with her in a group and listen to her pray, um, first of all, like you, I feel like, wow, she's got a shorter communication. Cha- it's like, I feel like, oh, excuse me, <laughs> God's going to put Mark on hold because Beth's on the other line. <laughs> You know, something like that. And I know that's not true. God can listen to all of us at one time. Please don't correct me theologically. All you Reformed theologians out there, I understand God can listen to us all at the same time. Okay. Um, I'm making a joke. It was a joke. But, uh, you know, but Beth is somebody that and, – and when I listen to her prayer, pray – I get inspired, honestly. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's like when I pray with her, it's like – I feel it like welling up in me, you know, and I'll get mm-hmm. fired up in prayer too when I'm praying alongside somebody like that. So there's a really, uh, there's a sense in which I think that we can inspire each other in prayer mm-hmm. and then we can learn from each other. I can, I learn to, to let go of my timidity, to let go of my sort of hat in hand, like, Lord, I'm sorry to bother you. I know you're busy. <laughs> Could you just listen for a second? You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, you hear Beth pray, and it's like mm-hmm. she comes in the door like, 
you know, God, I'm here. This is going, and just boom, she's right to it. And she's like, she There's knows she's, she's got the Lord's ear. She's got his attention. And she, there, she is coming to like talk to God. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I think that's, I think that that's part of the message of the parable as well. Yeah. Um, I, I know Beth would love that we're talking so much about this. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, you know, there's been a few times where during the service, during the 11 o'clock service, she breaks away and is fervently praying in a breakout room for all of the people in the congregation to have hearts that are sensitive to hear the message, for conversions, for conviction, for encouragement, for healing. You know, and I've I've been in there with her a few times during that time. So, like, if I'm doing the announcements during the first service, I'll go back there and, and sit with her in the second. And you think, man, to go 40 minutes and nonstop prayer, um, you think, you know, like uh, me, I'm like 40 minutes. You know, I'm going to run out of stuff to say unless I come with a list or you know some right. aid. Man, the time flies, and by the time 40 minutes is done, you're like, wait, 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 I, I still got some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but it's 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 powerful. Yeah. You know, how how wonderful it is when you get lost and you forget about everything else before the throne of God. Yeah. Um, it's an awesome thing. And by the way, if, they, if somebody who is listening to us talk about this uh, would be interested in joining Beth in that intercessory prayer time on Sunday, I know that they, that they would be welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a they thing. would be. There are, there are always open seats in that room to pray. So, uh, but that is something that, that, you know, if, if you're somebody that's listening to us talk about this and you think, man, I'm a little scared to open my mouth. I'm a little mm-hmm. scared to pray. Um, or, and I don't pray much on my own because I don't know what to say. I don't know how, I don't know what I should be saying. It, hey, take advantage of some of this stuff. There's opportunities around mm-hmm. our church for you to come together with people who will be praying confidently, who you can learn things from, who you can be inspired by. Um, and there's great opportunities around this church. And I am going to say, you're probably going to have to learn some of this from some women <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because the the women in our church are amazingly powerful in prayer. And I learn things from listening to them pray all the time. So if you've got and, to – what's that? I was just going to say, and they, they just have more words yeah. <laughs> than, <laughs> than we do. They have better words than we do. <laughs> there you go. Um, which good is, save. Good save. Which is, which is really weird to think about somebody having more words than you and me. <laughs> just, just on the, just on the base, like on the face of it. If I say there's somebody out there that's got more words than me, you're like, is that even possible? Is it, you know, one of the things that that you mentioned that I that I really appreciated and and your commentary and the personal worship was that like we're in Luke 11. There's only there's only 24 chapters of Luke, and yet the disciples are coming to him. The disciples of Jesus are coming to him, saying, "Lord, teach us to pray." And so, like, there's there's something that's really comforting. If you're somebody out there who's like, man, I don't know how to pray, or I feel distant, or my prayer life is in in the tank, you know, we're almost halfway through Luke's gospel, and they're just now like, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need someone to teach me how to pray. Um, and, they, you know, they've been Jesus' disciples now for, for how long at this point, you know? And they're just coming to terms with like, you know what? We don't pray right. There's something right. off. Something's missing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is, I think that is true. Um, and I think that's one of the things we've talked about this before also in mostly in the context of Peter, but mm-hmm. just of how the disciples are, you know, I love the fact that Jesus didn't surround himself with 12 of the best Pharisees. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. he didn't. He didn't go over to the to the school of like ultimate Phariseeism and say, "Give me twelve of your best." Mm-hmm. But he got twelve regular guys. He got he got twelve men with him who were just like you and me. And you know, there's all these times where things happen, and you're like, "Boy, I could I I could hear myself saying something like that." <laughs> and this yep. is this is one of those moments. And I think that you know, I think the Lord does, does these things. Intentionally, he does these things to to inspire us and to comfort us and to let us know that. And then the other part about it is that that the other half of the disciple story is how they were transformed by the resurrection. How they mm-hmm. went from being just ordinary guys, you know, guys who were afraid, hiding in a room because their their leader had just been killed. And when they saw him come back from the dead, they looked at the rest of the world and said, "What do I have to fear?" Mm-hmm. There's nothing out there I have to fear. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you know, I don't know. The disciples were. It was a. That's part. That's a great part of the story of Jesus. Is the is his disciples. Yeah. Um, so the answer that he had to them, uh, verse two, he said, and he said to them, when you pray, say. And this is the shorter version, by the way. If you want the longer version of the Lord's prayer, you got to go to Matthew, because Luke was writing to Gentiles and he was giving them just the facts. Matthew, on the other hand, was writing to the Jews, and Matthew had – he was just more flowery. He had more stuff in there. One of the things that I love that it's different is we would be tempted to say – like when they come and say, man, I'm, I'm so jealous of the way that Jesus prays. Lord, teach us to pray. Like humanity, what we tend to want to do is say, all right, God, give us a technique. What's the trick? Yeah. you know, And we yeah. want a formula of words to say. And, and the fact that Luke gives us a different – order of things here and some stuff that's missing entirely is to tell us it's not formulaic. It's right. not, you know, repeat these words verbatim and that's the trick to prayer. No, he's he's teaching you how to pray, how to enter into prayer, not necessarily the words to say, right. but the posture of your heart as you come into prayer. Right. What I was saying about Matthew writing to Jews is that it was a very common thing for Jews to pray to their to you know their heavenly Father or our Father in heaven, um, and and Luke is just like Father, mm-hmm. hallowed be thy hallowed be your name. Whereas Matthew is you know our Father, yeah, we forgive my King James, which art in heaven, and it's like so we have that sort of heavenly Father kind of of uh, you know phrases coming from Matthew. I think partly because a Jewish audience would identify with that. But I think also, as you say, it's an opportunity to let us know is whether you are a more flowery or not doesn't matter. The question mm-hmm. is, do you know who you're praying to? Are you praying to your heavenly father? Um, and that's, you know, that's where Luke starts off. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, the term hallowed uh, or hallowed, uh, that's a word that means to, to make holy or to be shown to be holy. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, uh, what do we take from hallowed be your name? So right out of the gates, because remember, they're saying, man, how can we pray like you're praying? And so you got to remember like what Jesus is, is, like I said, he's teaching them how to pray with a different posture. Because if, you know, like <laughs> in school, if I ask any student to pray, I can almost tell you what their prayer is going to be before they say it. You know, God, uh, help us to have a great day. Um, you know, and it's all going to be the same stuff, but you're not, it's not like these students are going, now wait a minute, I've got an opportunity to go before the throne of God and to recognize how precious he is and to make much of his name and to be in awe of the fact that I get to stand before him in all of his glory and holiness and 
come to him as I would a father. Um, what a privilege. Like that changes your perspective. And he says, before you even come with your petitions, you've got to get the posture of your heart right. And so the first thing you say is, Father, you know, you're recognizing who you are, your identity. You're not earning it. You're not a servant. You're not coming to him saying, you know, I, I you, you owe me an audience because I've done something. You're, you're given an audience because of your identity in him. He's your father. And so you come with that kind of boldness as you would to a father. But the word hallowed, I love this. And the, and the Greek, it's, it's actually imperative. So it's like you're giving God a command. And what the command is, I always used to hear hallowed be your name and think, okay, God's name is holy is basically what you're saying. But it's actually a command where you're saying, God, I want you to make your name holy. And it's like you're pleading with God, make your name precious, be precious in this world. I want people to revere you and to see how valuable you are and how precious you are. And it's not just the the watching world, but it's like, Lord, I want you to make your name precious to me. I'm coming to you with worldly sinful lenses. I'm looking at all of my circumstances. Help me to stop for a moment and recognize that your name – is the most precious thing in all the earth before I come to you with anything else. Help me revere you as you deserve to be as I stand before you. Mm -hmm. Hmm. When you start to look at it that way and you start to think about uh, asking or, or as you say, sort of of imperative of telling God, make your name holy, um, it's not such a – it's not a throwaway phrase. No. John Piper, who's mm-hmm. a he's a he's a preacher that I appreciate. He's a Southern Baptist Reformed guy up in Minnesota. He says this first line is the key to the rest of the prayer. Everything else is to fulfill this first petition. Mm-hmm. You know, his kingdom is to make his name holy. His will being done is to make his name holy. You being supplied your daily needs is to make his name holy. Everything is to magnify his name. Mm-hmm. And so when you come in, this is there's six petitions in Matthew's version. One of them is missing in the Luke version. But this is the most – he leads with this. I'm going to offer you six, six requests, God, but this is the one I'm opening with. Make your name precious to right. me and to the world. And the second thing is your kingdom come, which you start off with the things that are most important. Like we just said, the most important thing is that your name would be made holy or shown to be holy before all the world. But then the second most important, the second thing in the list, also more important than any of our requests. We haven't, we're not getting to our things yet is Mm -hmm. your kingdom come. So, you know, one of the things that I think about with, with prayer is how often, um, we jump into prayer when we need something, and mm-hmm. and and everything that we say before we get to what it is we need sounds clipped and rushed and rote and hurried because all we want to do is get to what we need because that's why we dialed him up in the first place, you know. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, when you pray, you start with this. You start mm-hmm. with his agenda because what he's doing is more important than what you need. Does mm-hmm. it doesn't mean what you need isn't important. You can't the inverse of that is not this is, isn't the, the case. But it does mean that we start first and genuinely with Lord, you know, may your name be shown to be holy. Make your name holy and all and your kingdom come. You know, mm-hmm. like that's the other big part of it. 
And what that does is it 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 changes the way that you come to him for the rest of your prayer. Um, so the the second line there, your kingdom come, Lord. What is what are you getting at there? So it's it's saying, you know, I know what your kingdom looks like because you've told me your kingdom ultimately one day is going to be a world where there is no more sickness and there's no more death and there's no more mourning and there's no more pain and all the old order of sinful fallen world, all of that stuff has passed away. And I know with absolute certainty by faith that that is my future. There is mm-hmm. going to be a day, one time, when when all of my requests, no matter what they might be, are going to be taken care of and done away with, and that is in my future sealed because of who you are, God. Right. But right now, what I'm asking is for a glimpse of that future kingdom – that that fulfilled ultimate kingdom to invade this world mm-hmm. to bring a taste of your heavenly kingdom down and you know i think about my mom you know my mom is is dying of cancer she was supposed to live a month she's lived now 6 months and you know the hospice people are like she seems okay you know even though she's in the final stages of of stage 4 lung cancer now when i go before the lord and i say you know, your kingdom come. What I, what I know for my mom is that she is going to be healed, that God has already taken care of her by what he's done on the cross, that one day she's going to be cancer-free, one day her dementia will be overthrown, one day she will stand far healthier than she has ever been in her entire life here. I know that. And what I'm asking God to do is, Lord, allow your kingdom to invade. Mm-hmm. But when I come to him, before I ever offer up the specific petition and I say, your kingdom come, one, it reminds me of the kingdom that's already secure that's in our future, but it gives me the absolute hope before I go to anything else that you've already accomplished all this. Mm-hmm. That kingdom is already absolutely fixed and firm for my mom. Mm-hmm. And it gives great comfort to offer the rest of the prayers. Yeah. If, if I'm asking for provision, if I'm asking for whatever, I know that you know, the will of God ultimately and the eternal sense of things is all of this stuff will be made right. right. There will be perfect justice and right. perfect health and abundant life. And so I, my hope rests there and I know, okay, well, what is God's kingdom? What is his mission in this world? Is it's to bring his design, his goodness, his justice through me into this world. And so what I'm saying is, God, it's not my name that's most important. It's your name. It's not my kingdom and my agenda that's most important. It's your kingdom. And oh, by the way, I get to delight in the fact that your kingdom mission (laughs) is an abundant, infinite inheritance for the saints, for your church. Um, And so when you start before you get into anything that's personal by just delighting and being overwhelmed at mm-hmm. you know and wanting God's name to be lifted up and wanting his kingdom to prevail um my goodness like then when you go into the rest of the prayer and you think of how precious those things are the rest of it is kind of put in its proper context right um and then we have Three petitions, quick in a row here, that are that are our petitions. We're asking on ourselves. There's a give us each day our daily bread, which is a provision for 
exactly that. Lord, give us what we need today. Take care of our physical needs today. And then, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So three petitions, and as you mentioned, there's a sixth in Matthew's version of this. Um, so three petitions to address our own needs, and they focus on things that I, you know, and things that I think are, are, are kind of giving you the big picture. It's like, yes, we have physical needs. We have need for provision. We have need, we have needs. And it's, and God is saying, come and, and ask me for what you need. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a bad thing when we go to the Lord and say, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I don't mm-hmm. have enough to make the car payment. There's no food here. I need, you know, whatever it is, you know, we're being told, ask for what you need, your daily bread. Um, but I think it's interesting, Sam, that it's the daily bread. It's not, mm-hmm. Lord, give me enough for today and for the rest of my life, and so I never need to have to worry about this again. God wants us to have a sort of rhythm of a, of a regular daily reliance on him. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus is quoting is actually quoting from the Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, there's an oracle named Agur, and he makes that prayer, give us our daily bread. And in that prayer, he very specifically says, don't give me more than I need because I'll get too rich and I'll think it's all mine and I won't need you anymore and I'll walk away from you. Um, But don't give me too little to where I'm tempted to steal. And so when you say, give us this day our daily bread, what you're saying is – don't give me too much right? <laughs> because I don't want to be misled to believe that wealth is my God and don't give me too little. I bet people, <laughs> they might pray that a little different Yeah, if you realize what you're saying is I don't want to be abundantly wealthy. Yeah, it's Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. If you get your personal worship study notes this week, you might, figure, you might find that the guy that wrote the study notes put that in the related verses too, so – I'm with you on that one. No, that's a good – it's good. Remove remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's very powerful verses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a – there's a reason why God wants you to have enough but not too much. You know, mm-hmm. that's like – they right there in verse nine, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? It's not like, you know, if, if all of our needs are met, it's not like we sit back and go, Lord, all of my needs are met. Now, what can I do for you? Next, we sit back and go, all of my needs are met. Must be time for me to take a nap um, yeah. or something like that. But it's also, the, so the first part of the Lord's prayer, it, it requires you to throw yourself on how uh, magnificent he is to remember what he's done for you on the cross to think about the mission of his kingdom and how man if his kingdom would truly invade this world how wonderful this world would be um you know with things like radical generosity and humility and kindness and all of those things the fruit of the spirit if we were to see those things universally invade our world that would be a world we'd want to live in and so the first parts of the petition is god make much of yourself and your kingdom and all that but all of the things that deal with us, when Jesus teaches us to pray, it's it comes from a place of utter humility and recognizes our limitations and weaknesses. Right. You know, when you say, give us each day our daily bread, what are, you, what are you saying? I'm completely out of control and entirely dependent upon you to provide for me. Right. Because, you know, I can work hard and I can do all that, but ultimately you have to send the rain. You're in charge of all the circumstances. Everything I get is from your hand. And so I'm praying, give me 
daily bread. But there's a you have to confess a weakness. Lord, I'm entirely reliant upon you. Um, when you come and you say, "Forgive us our sins," <laughs> you know that is a tremendous. You have to be humble to come and say, "I'm a mess." Right. You know, you have to say, I, I don't measure up. I have failed in a million different ways. I don't deserve your favor, but forgive me. Um, and so you, you come with humility there. And then the last one, lead us not into to temptation. Why? Well, what you're doing there is you're confessing a weakness. You're saying, uh, I'm not sure that I have the strength or the righteousness or the obedience to be able to navigate through temptation. And so, God, I'm praying that you would spare me from it, that you would show me mercy by not by not allowing me to fall into it. Right. And so in all of these petitions, what you're doing is, you know, it's it's not today, you know, it's prayer is not the what you call, you know, your heavenly Pez dispenser, yes. <laughs> you know. You know, it's not that. It's it's recognizing how mighty he is, how glorious his name is, how wonderful his kingdom is, and then coming to him and recognizing, man, but I am I'm a weak vessel and I really need you. Mm-hmm. And and that will change your prayer life. You know, I had I also had two thoughts about um these last two petitions, the forgive us our sins and lead us not to temptation. The forgive us our sins thing, I know there's going to be somebody there who hears us, who hears that and thinks, didn't God already forgive my sin? Isn't my, aren't, my, aren't all my sins forgiven? And I think that the useful thing here is to, to look at that second clause and forgive, our, us, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This idea of the debt of sin or this idea of the weight of sin. You know, when Paul talks about let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, this this idea that sin weighs us down, you know, yes, all of our sins are forgiven judicially. They've God has God has paid for all the sins that we have done and ever will do all at the cross because He's He is a once for all forgiveness there. But there is it's very true that when we sin it creates this like sort of you know we're creating a debt to god it's like we're in mm-hmm. we recognize that we are in debt indebted to him now it's like every time i do something wrong i feel the weight of of how i have selfishly ignored god and what god's done for me and this idea of asking god to forgive me my sins is not saying lord i feel like you didn't forgive me my sins but it's my way of saying lord i want to i want to I want to set aside, I want to recognize what I have done and make this weight and this feeling of debt go away to restore this relationship, to mm-hmm. to to set that aside. That's what we're asking for here. It's like, Lord, forgive us our sins so that we can feel the weight of them come off of us and that we're not feeling that indebtedness that stalls us in our relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's good word because I, when you look at that particular Greek word for forgive, more often than it's translated forgive, it's translated as to leave behind. Right. Um, and so what it's saying, like, I, man, as a pastor or anybody, I mean, as an elder, Mark, you know this story, that if you come across somebody who is struggling intensely with a besetting sin, what's their spiritual life like? They're, it's garbage. Yeah, they're they're embarrassed and ashamed and afraid. And, they're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They're not. You know, they're not going to be. You know, oh, I can't wait to read my Bible. I can't wait to jump into prayer. I can't wait for worship. 
they avoid God because the weight of the sin that's weighing on them makes them want to stay away from him, you know? And and so it's like the two are almost – if you find somebody who is struggling with sin, they push God to the corner. And if you find somebody who is absolutely just fired up for God, what happens? They push their sin to the corner. Um, and so – and they're eager to embrace forgiveness and eager to leave their sins behind. And so what this is saying is – Help me to be free of the sin that keeps me from being right with you. Right. It's, it, it's like, you know, not necessarily like, well, I don't believe that you really forgave us the first time like you're talking about. It's saying, I want to draw near to you. Help me right. to leave that behind so that there's nothing in the way of my relationship with you. Right. Nothing. And then my thought on the lead us not into temptation is that's a petition. That's a thing I'm asking that only works if I'm following him. If I say to you, Sam, lead me to, you know, it's like we're, we're, for whatever reason, in this fictitious example, you and I are in a dangerous <laughs> position. And I'm like, Sam, lead me to safety, brother. You know the way. Lead me to the safe ground. I'm just going to stay right here, though. I, I, I'm just, you lead me, but I'm just going to sit right here. Huh. That doesn't work. It's I've like, never noticed that. That's lead cool. us not into temptation only works if we are following him. That's good. I've always just read that as like, don't put me in situations where there's temptation. Okay. But you're right. It is lead us. But so you got to follow. <laughs> there's, there are, the thing is that we always look at this inverse of things like lead us not into temptation. Human mind is trained to think, oh, so there's a possibility that you might lead me into temptation. No, God is, there's, that was another verse in, in, um, personal worship this week. But, um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's like God is not in the temptation business. He does not, he never would lead us into temptation. He delivers us from temptation, you know? Hmm. Um, but, the, good. but the thing here is that lead us not into temptation, it you know, and Matthew adds, and deliver us from the evil one, which I really like. Um, I like the Matthew version too. They're, they're both good versions. Yeah, me too. But but I just wanted to point out this implies if I say, Lord, lead me back to us, me, lead me, not into. I'm saying, lead me away from temptation. That implies I'm going to follow it. So so that is the, you know that's the sample prayer that he that he gives them, and then right on the heels of that. He jumps into these, this parable of the friend at midnight, and he starts off, he sets up this, this circumstance. He says, verse 5, and he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So the scenario is set up, Sam, where uh, <laughs> one friend going to another friend at midnight, which is a ridiculously late hour to be able to go there. Let me – the other thing, too, for our audience, 
I know there's going to be somebody out there sitting, well, I don't usually go to bed before midnight, so you're welcome to come by and knock on my door. You know, (laughs) life was different before we had electricity and television and smartphones and even easily printed books. The fact is that, you know, your day pretty much ran from sunup to sundown. And when the sun went down, yeah, maybe you did a few things by candlelight, but not much. You pretty much went to bed after it got dark. Um, And so to come at midnight... That would have been in the middle of the night, you know. It's like so. So this guy's knocking on your door, Sam, while you've already been in bed for a little while. So first of all, he's being very preposterous in his, you know, in his coming at that hour. But then this idea of, you know, the door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. In the first century, um, it was true, right, that these were mostly like one room houses. Mm-hmm. The average person's house was like a one room thing, and they mm-hmm. slept in front of the door, right? So so usually what would happen, you, it depends on where your status is, but most people had a one-room house, and they would lay out the mats on the floor, and so when you started laying out your bedding onto the floor and you laid down to open the door, you got to wake everybody up and start moving everything again. And, and you're going to be, you know, it's not like, hold on, I need to go to the kitchen. You know, like, yeah. no, it's... <laughs> there was no kitchen. <laughs> your living room and bedroom are the kitchen. Yeah. And so... And in some of the wealthier houses, they would have still one room, but in the back of the room, they would have elevated areas where there was the bed. But in all likelihood, what Jesus means here, bedding on the floor, for me to get up and let you in means I have to totally like wake everybody up, disrupt everything going on in the house. Yeah. So this is super inconvenient. And well, I got to admit, as we're reading it, I'm like, I had the <laughs> the wicked thought of testing this and coming over to your house at one o'clock in the morning to ask you for three loaves of bread tonight and recording the response. (laughs) (laughs) It would be a response from my wife because uh, I have terrible tinnitus. My ears ring really bad. So when I go to bed at nights, I actually put headphones on and listen to like water sounds. So you'd be knocking on my door and I wouldn't know it. Yeah, yeah, that's much less funny. Yeah, that's much less funny. <laughs> um, so at any rate, the, and then the other thing here, this idea of – and I said it's it's kind of like a first century burglar alarm. It's like you know, the, one mm-hmm. of the other things about sleeping in front of the door was nobody's going to be able to break in your front door and enter your house. They're going to bonk you in the head with the door when they when they <laughs> open it. So there was a sense in which this also provided them with a bit of security. It's like if we're sleeping on the floor in front of the door – then mm-hmm. I know no one's going to come through that door because if they do, they're going to rouse me. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, One of the other things, just just as a little throwaway trivia nugget, is sometimes they would actually sleep on their roof for the weather. You know, in the in the cooler months or when it was really hot out to get uh-huh. the to get the breeze that would come along. Oh. But this says he answers from within, so we know that it's comfortable inside, and they're actually sleeping inside on the floor. Right. Um, and so then when he talks about, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, meaning that if Sam's at the door at 1 a.m., he's nothing to me. <laughs> he says, yet because of his impudence, and the word impudence is a really, really interesting word. In the Greek, that word is, first of all, it's hardly ever used. It's the only place it's really used in the New Testament in the Bible. But that word in every other writing indicates a complete lack of understanding what is proper. <laughs> it's like it's that's that's what it means. It's like you have no clue. You're like you're knocking on the door at 1 a.m. and you're thinking this is okay, you know, that kind of thing. Um so that's really what he's describing here is that this this yeah, okay, fine. I you know, he's not going to do it because he's your friend, but you know, 
you're standing at the door. It's like he's got to make you go away somehow. So, and you're an idiot and you don't know what's proper. So he's going to do it. You know, he's going to do it for you. And I think that what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of setting up one of those and, you know, so there's, and how much more kind of things because, yeah. and we're going to get that more at the end of the parable. But even right here, you know, the point that Jesus, I think, wants us to have is that this is what you guys do for each other. You know, it's like, even though you're like really irritated at your friend, um, because he's an idiot and he doesn't know what proper, you're going to do it for him anyways. How much more God who is never busy, God whose door mm-hmm. is never closed, God who always welcomes you, how much quicker and, and more and more gracefully will he receive you? He's setting up a contrast between our interactions as human beings and what we ask each other. And in personal worship, I actually asked people a question this week because I, I was thinking about this. I'm like, okay, so we all know somebody that doesn't take no for an answer. I'm thinking of some names right now, people I know that don't take no for an answer. And they have at times gotten something that they wanted from me, even though I would have rather not done it for them. And I'm going to tell you, every time that that's happened, I felt a certain kind of way about it. It's like, okay, you got what you wanted. I hope you're happy. Um, But, okay, then my second, my follow-up question was, all right, so that's what it takes for someone to, you know, to, to bang that out of you. What about if your children or some other loved one comes to you? You know, when my kids came to me in the middle of the night because they were sick or they needed something or they did or they were afraid or whatever it was, you know, my kids would come. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. I didn't say it's late. Look, guys, you should just no. They're my children. It's like the reaction was totally different because I loved this person that was coming to me, and I think that that's the other thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that if you people. You human folk can irritate each other into helping. Imagine how much quicker God's going to respond when he loves you. Mm-hmm. I mean, even even in the beginning of this, like you talk about the, the difference in relationship. Jesus has taught us to pray, Father, right? Right. So, so how do we relate to him? We relate to him as children. And here you have the guy who's being woken up. And what is his immediate concern? Uh, my children are in bed with me. You're going to wake them up. Like, that's right. You know, even even in the story, you have a father that's concerned with children, and yet, you know, to the friend, he's not going to turn them away because he's persistent. You know, it's uh, that's that's totally true. And I mean, the the closer you get, the less you know crazy the store story seems. I mean, if right. you had an an enemy banging on your door demanding bread. It would be like, get out of here. You know, if you had a stranger knocking on your door, you'd call the police, right? (laughs) You know, but then if it's your neighbor that you barely know, well, it's a little weird. But if it's a good friend, and then if it's your, you know, wife or then your children, like the closer you get in relationship in terms of dependence, um, like there's a, it softens. Like your, your children come to you, of course. If your wife comes to you or your husband comes to you, you might be like, Get up and get it yourself, but yeah. you're not <laughs> you're not going to be like infuriated. Where right. you know, if a total stranger came, you'd be like, "What's wrong with this person?" Every married um, person in here is familiar with the question: Are your legs broken? <laughs> Do you want them to be broken? 
Uh, that's good. That's yeah, good. Yeah. So, um, well, so, and then Jesus, though, in the next two verses, he gives something which, on the surface of it, when, because this is, I think people misapply this all the time. Verse nine, he says, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. You know, I've heard those verses applied at times to this thing of, and usually, again, I'm going to maul the, you know, here's Mark taking out his hammer and beating the prosperity gospel and televangelists over the head again. But the fact is, that's where you, where I've heard it taken out of context most of the time, is on these TV preachers that have, you know, the Joel Osteens of the world, who have said, hey, you know, if you keep asking, God will give you what you're asking for. And I'm like, mm, no, it really does depend on what you're asking for. Um, and I, you know, I, I put a couple of verses in personal worship this week. The, the famous one from James, you don't have because you don't ask. And you, you know, you ask and you don't get because you ask wrongly for your own passions. It's like you're asking to feed your own need. You're not really understanding, you know, what's going on here in terms of, of God's will and, and how you should be asking. Um, that was also in, in, uh, 1 John 5, uh, verses 14 and 15. It says, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. God hears and responds when we are asking something that is in alignment with his will. The, the challenge to us is to be in alignment with his will when we ask. So mm-hmm. this is not a blanket guarantee where Jesus is coming out saying, if you bang on the doors of heaven long enough, God will give you what you want. Yeah, especially if that is entirely opposed to what his will is. Yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't want God to answer, you know, prayers of of wrath on something or something that runs contrary to his kingdom or his commandments. Sure. You know, we were We were talking about this before we started recording – about somebody who was saying that they felt that you know the Lord was answering their prayer that they could do something that was against what God's word very specifically said right. that they were to do they said oh God gave me permission not to do right. no <laughs> no <it laughs> that's doesn't. not how it works yeah. you know God is never going to answer a prayer that runs contrary to his word he's never going to grant permission for you to violate his commandments but I, but I do think that this means that – and I do believe this, by the way. I believe that God answers prayer. I just think that sometimes when we ask for the wrong thing, the way that he answers – you know, it's like we ask God for something and then we look for that thing. We were talking about this before we turned the mics on too. We ask God for something and then we look for that thing that we asked for. And it's like we get tunnel vision, Sam. It's like that's all we can see. God, I asked you for this. God, I want – and I can't look for anything else. And he could have answered – Five prayers that we didn't pray, things that he knew we needed, things that, are, things that are applicable right now in this situation that's going on. But because I can't look for anything outside of what I asked him for, you have to be open to look for God's answer, even outside the boundaries of what it is that you've asked for. Because Jesus is saying, he is saying, God will answer your prayers. I believe mm-hmm. that. I believe that with all my heart. God will answer your prayers. He just doesn't always answer them by doing exactly what it is you're asking him for. Mm-hmm. And he he's able to see a lot <laughs> clearer than you do, and he knows your desires and your needs better than you do. And so it's like, you know, one of the things that, that when you come 
end prayer and you open the way that Jesus is is telling you to. Lord, I want your name to be exalted, your kingdom to be exalted above mm-hmm. mine, your will to be done above mine. What you're doing is you're you're essentially coming to him and saying, "Look, these are the deep longings of my my heart. These these are the things that 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 hurt. These are the things where I have need." I'm giving them to you. Here's what I think would really help. But then trusting, like you said, that he, as the master physician, may have a different prescription than the one you want. Right. Um, that that's going to meet you where you're at. Well, that goes back to again to this thing that we were talking about. That those opening clauses, they're not just things that you need to say in order to get God's attention. So then you can ask him for what you want. Mm-hmm. It's like if you know if it's not your deep longing. That God's name be made holy in all the earth. If that if that's not something you really want to see, then the problem isn't that whether you should or shouldn't say that when you pray. We need to talk about why you don't want that. If you're you know mm-hmm. if if you if you do, you know if like uh, yes Lord your kingdom come now let me talk to you about my rent payment that's due. If mm-hmm. if if you really don't deeply desire every bit as much as you want to not be put on the street, you want to see his kingdom come. If those things aren't at least equal, and I'm saying that the kingdom come should be higher because it's higher on the list, then that's what we need to talk about. We don't need to talk about should I say that or not? Should I skip that part of the prayer? Can I just get right to what I want? We need to talk about the fact that if if you don't want those things – Let's talk about that. Why don't you want that? Mm-hmm. Why don't you want to see his kingdom come? Yeah, there was a – so right now as we're recording this on a Tuesday, um, and so we're still I – don't, I don't know how this is going to play out in, in Ukraine and in Kiev, but my wife was a missionary in Kiev for three and a half years. And over there, she met lots of missionaries that just love Jesus with everything they have. And as you're talking about the first part of the prayer where you're saying, Lord, I'm, uh, your name matters the most. I'm giving my life to your kingdom. I'm giving my life to your will. Conform me to whatever you want. It, I was just thinking about this as, as you were talking. There's a missionary that she worked with over in Ukraine, and in this, she sent out a, a an update as to how she was doing in the middle of all the bombing and everything else. And she says, uh, I'm not abandoning Kiev yet. Tomorrow will be tomorrow. I know that I am in God's hands, and no matter where I am in, on earth, no one can snatch me from the hands of my Father. My life will last exactly that long and will end on the day that God decides, not someone else. How am I? You know, before the war, there were different rumors. When and how it will be, I tried not to read the news, but still the anxiety was covering me from the unknown. And then I realized that my safety and peace in my heart should not come from good news, whether everything is going to be good or bad according to human standards. My safety must come from what my God is, what he said in his word. This is important. This is forever and always. When war came, the peace of God settled in my heart. God is faithful to his promises. And, you know, she goes on later to say that, you know, she takes comfort in knowing that whenever she dies, she's with him. And so she's coming with prayer, and I can promise you that her prayers for circumstance are far more fervent and desperate than anything that I've prayed recently. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's for sure. And and I will tell you, bizarrely, she is experiencing far more peace yeah. than I am 
recently. Yeah. Why? Because she recognizes that the first part of that prayer, you can almost stop there, and that's enough, right? Yeah. You are on the throne. You are good. Your name is precious. Your kingdom is really all that matters, God. And she stopped there, and now she's walking around in the middle of absolute chaos with utter peace. That is what I think when the disciples look at Jesus and they see all the chaos that's surrounding his life, all the threats and dangers and everything else, and they see how is it that when he goes into prayer, he just looks like he's at absolute peace with total joy in that moment. And it's because he's connecting with the only thing that matters, um, the Father, and who he is and what he's promised and what he's assured him of. If we went into prayer with that kind of mindset, with the mindset of this missionary, my goodness, like it changes the way we pray. It changes the way we live. Well, I'd love to let that stand as the last word, but we do have one more thing (laughs) from Jesus that I think, well, that I think is valuable in this parable. Um, and that's how Jesus uh, concludes it in verse 11, 12, 13. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, mm-hmm. Jesus is making the point that God knows what is good for us. And that's a huge component to being able to accept however he answers our prayers. Um, Because there have been times that I've prayed for things, and honestly, I've missed – whatever God did, I missed it. Mm -hmm. I felt like he just didn't answer. Uh, and, and, And I know, intellectually, theologically, I know, no, he answered. I missed it because I was just looking for what it was I asked for. I wasn't, I wasn't looking for the, for what he might be doing. Um, but I need to remember this all the time, which is, you know, if I would not do something like that to my own son, if my son comes to me and says, dad, I'm hungry. Can you give me some food? Sure. Let me just give you this can of rat poison. Drink it down. There's no, there's no way I would do that. I would cut off my own arm before I would do that to my child. Mm -hmm. And, and so, if, if that's how I feel about my children and I'm evil, how much more can we trust God? You know? Amen. You know, that gets back to – I forget where in Scripture it is, but if, if God would not withhold his son from us, you know, how much more will he grant our, our requests? Like how much more will he take care of us? Um, there's a, there's a truth in that where when you're wrestling through your prayers and there's times where you know there's some people out there who are probably like man it felt like he gave me a serpent in this particular case um, or in this particular scenario but when you step back and you recognize that the father gave his son for you yeah. well, what does that mean that means that whatever you're asking for when 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 the father ultimately gives himself he's willing to you know God coming into the flesh, being crucified on the cross, laying down his own life for you. For what? So that all of the great desires and longings and shortcomings that are in your heart ultimately are fulfilled because you now stand to inherit the kingdom. Your prayers will be answered, and they're going to be answered at great cost. We've seen the cost of God's ultimate answered prayers. And so, you know, in some sense, he's he's always gracious and he's always kind in the ultimate sense. But the yeah. question is, in the here and now, this is what you're saying. God is still answering your questions in the here and now, 
but it's not always in the ways that we anticipate. Um, it, it might be a beautiful answer. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for something and God has given me something different that I was disappointed in at first that has shaped me and who I am and my family and marriage and everything else. And so, you know, but at the end of it, we know the character of God yeah. because he gives his son. He He gives the ultimate for us. Yeah, that verse that you were talking about comes at the end of one of my favorite passages. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul in Romans chapter 8. If you don't read any other chapter of Romans, you should read Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite ones in all of Scripture. I really do believe that's one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. I do the too. promises there are absolutely stunning. And, I mean, it is it is one of the great, great chapters of all of Scripture. You know, people say, well, what's that place in Scripture where God said uh, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus? That would be Romans chapter Romans 8, 8, verse 1. <laughs> where does it say, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's Romans eight thirty one. What about that thing where it says, more than conquerors? That would be Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What about that part where nothing separates us? Really, the end of Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll put Romans 8 up against any other chapter of Scripture. Well, one verse that's in there, and I I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going to be paraphrasing it, but it's also in Romans 8 is also on prayer, and it just shows the the incredibly zealous heart that the Lord has for us. And it's when he says, you know, when you reach a situation where you are, like, you don't even know how to pray. You're in such grief. You're so overcome by emotion or whatever it might be that you don't even know how to pray. He says that the Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too powerful for words. And that has always blown me away. Like, yeah. if if we would enter into our prayers, because when we enter into our prayers, we ten- tend to be timid and we tend to think, you know, my prayers are no good and, you know, I'm, I got stupid words or whatever. But the fact that God cares for you so much that the spirit kind of comes alongside inhabits your prayers and brings animation to them before the throne of God with groanings that are too powerful for words when you don't know how to pray or what yeah. to pray like just the heart that God has for you like he's not indifferent to your prayers i mean no. listen to listen to that promise from Romans 8 yeah verse it's, 26 actually yeah, stunning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who I love verse twenty seven, which is the follow up that He goes. <laughs> we should just read Romans. Let's 8, just read you? Romans eight. That's it. Today we're going to read Romans eight. We're going to do that every day until you until we understand it. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's like. 
my prayers are bumbling. Like I can't. And, but you know what? The Spirit knows. In He's He knows what's in your heart, and God knows that what's in the, the Spirit intercedes on your behalf. It's like if I can't get it to come out of my mouth, there's a Spirit pipeline where God knows. <laughs> it's good. So it's uh, and that yeah. That one statement, I had this conversation with somebody where it says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts, that's that's a pretty heavy statement to yep. throw down, and there's no translation error there. <laughs> He's, he says what he means there, you who are evil. And I've come across people who have, have been like, whoa, you know, that's really heavy-handed, and – you know, you'll you'll hear people talk about how well the Christian faith just just makes you feel bad. And I was talking with somebody who had problems with verses like this just recently, and I said, "Man, I don't. I find that to be totally freeing." And they were like, "What do you mean? You know, Jesus has just looked at his disciples and called them evil." And and I said, "That would be one thing if he said, you 'You're evil. You disgust me. Now get away from me.'" But what he's saying is. I know who you are. I know that you're self-absorbed. I know that you come with all kinds of baggage. I know, and he uses a strong word, you're, you're evil, like you're self-absorbed. You're conflict-ridden. You're proud. You're arrogant. You do a lot of things that you regret, like you've got a rough track record, and you're my children, and I'm eager to be generous towards you. And what that does for us is it allows us to not say, no, 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 I'm really good, look, and walk around with the burden of wearing a mask and pretending that we measure up when behind the scenes we know that there's something that doesn't measure up. Even by our own standards, we don't measure up to what we want to be. And Jesus kind of gives us the, the, the pardon of saying, no, 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 I'm really good. He just says, I know who you are. Yeah. I know that – that behind it all, you're really deficient. You're really a mess. And guess what? You're my children, and I long to give you good gifts. Like, that's freeing. It means that he doesn't give you gifts because you're so good. You know, if the Bible came and said, you're all so good, I'd be going, what's wrong with me? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not like that. But the Bible cuts right to the point and allows us the, the freedom of recognizing he sees us at our worst and yet he's so good that he longs to give gifts to his children. Yeah. And that is our greater identity. Not the evil. We are his children. Yeah. Well, and that is a good word also. And I think this is the one we'll end on. Um, folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today, that it's been profitable for you. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed the series on He Gave Us Stories. We have several more weeks to go. Uh, but this week has been Luke chapter 11 and the story of the, the parable of the friend at midnight, uh, as well as we talked about the Lord's Prayer. If you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. Uh, that's also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find Out of Water on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available for iOS or Android at an app store near you. We'll be back next week with another in the series He Gave Us Stories, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water. <laughs>